Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, uh, where we are studying Morenavuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We're in Section 2, Chapter 43. Um, we uh, are in the midst of the Rambam's lengthy discussion of the nature of prophecy, what the prophetic experience is. And of course, the Rambam, uh, this is very important to the Rambam because of uh, the Rambam's understanding of, of God being a transcendent God and how God is, is able to, uh, despite his transcendence, bring messages down to our world and communicate with man. So on the one hand, the Rambam is an Aristotelian whose God is a transcendent God, but at the same time needs to reconcile the idea of prophecy with that transcendent God because that's a biblical, a basic biblical precept and is really the, the foundation of uh, all of our beliefs, uh, uh, including the, the giving of the, of the Torah. So that's why we've been discussing this for the last several weeks and we'll continue discussing this until we get to the end of uh, section two, which we should be finishing in just a few weeks. Um, section two has 48 chapters, and so we're in chapter 43, so we are getting close to the end. Um, I want to bring up, uh, you can follow along, before I do that, you can follow along uh, in chapter 43. On page 391 in the Shlomo Pines edition of the Morinavuchim, which is the ver version we've been using all along to discuss the Mora in English. Um, and I'm going to share my screen with you so that we'll be able to look at the outline together of our shiur, shiur for today. Um, what, uh, uh, the, what I wanted to just point out is that we could encapsulate this entire discussion, the Rambam's entire presentation today uh, in chapter 43 essentially is that prophecies contain images um, and those images act as a metaphor for the message that God wishes to convey. And the, what the Rambam is going to uh, spend time uh, uh, explaining to us today is the nature of those metaphorical images. Um, many times the metaphor and the message seem to be somewhat distant from each other. God uses parables um, and it, those parables are in the form of images that the prophet dreams of when he's having this prophecy, when he's in that prophecy state, and then it's up to him to either have the parable explained to him or for him to figure out the meaning of the parable and communicate that to whomever he's meant to communicate that to. Um, the only uh, question that the Rambam does not answer explicitly in our chapter is why, and that's why I have that word why in italics, because the Rambam is not going to bother with why. Why does God bring images to a prophet instead of just telling him destruction is coming? 
In other words, that would be a very simple message. Destruction is coming or the destruction is coming, coming from Babylon, let's say, which was a common message to the Nevi'im, to the prophets, that God is going to destroy the temple. Jerusalem will be despoiled by the Babylonians and, uh, because, and you people have not repented. Um, why couldn't that be a verbal message instead of there being visions that the prophet now has to interpret as part of that message. That's something that I hope that we'll be able to discuss at the end of our discussion today. But first, before we do that, I'd like actually just to go through the content of chapter 43, and then when we're done and we've seen some of the technical, uh, dis, uh, technical aspects of these parables, then we'll get into the question of why. So the first thing that the Rambam does is that he establishes that prophets prophesy in parables. And he says, you know something, I've already talked about this. This is not something that should be a chiddush, it's not something that should be a novelty to you. It's something that I've already talked about in the Mishneh Torah when I talked about the sort of the protocols of prophecy. And the Rambam does this in Hilchot Yisodeh Torah, in chapter seven of that section of the Mishneh Torah. And if we, we'll just take a look at the Hebrew text of Halacha Gimel together because he cite, the Rambam says, I refer you to that point. It's a short little paragraph. He says, Things that are shown to a prophet in a vision of prophecy, are shown to him using a parable or a metaphor. Usually, immediately what happens is that the meaning of the parable is also ensconced within the heart of the prophet. In other words, he immediately understands, oh, I'm seeing a vision of, let's say, a boiling pot. I now understand what the boiling pot represents, okay? V'yeda mahu, and immediately he'll know what it is. K'mo hasulam shira'a Yaakov avinu, u'malachim olim v'yordimbo. One example that the Rambam gives is the story of the uh, dream of Yaakov's ladder that he has in Parshat Vayetze in the Torah, where he dreams of angels going up and going down a ladder. Now, what is the meaning of that? So the Rambam says this is all just a parable. It's a parable to provide Yaakov with a message that Hashem wishes for him to have. And the Rambam explains that this parable was to give Yaakov a very specific message that his future descendants would suffer under the subjugation of various different uh, monarchies or kingdoms that were represented in the dream by angels going up and going down a ladder. Now, this is not to be found in the Torah. The Torah never tells us the meaning of this parable dream that Yaakov is having. When Yaakov awakens, he doesn't pronounce, oh, now I understand what's going to happen to my descendants based on this dream. All he says is, this place is truly awesome. But he doesn't, uh, the Torah never records that Yaakov understood the meaning of the dream, and it certainly doesn't tell us the meaning of the dream. And the truth is that the Rambam is relying on a Midrash. The Midrash tells us that when Yaakov had dreams of angels, each angel was the sire or the protector angel of a particular kingdom 
One angel was the Tsar of Babel. Another angel was the Tsar of Paras, of Persia. Another angel was the Tsar of Yavan, and another angel was the Tsar of Rome. So, and what these uh, angels represented was going up the ladder means that a, a, a kingdom is going to have some type of rise to power. Um, and then when they come down the ladder, it means that the kingdom is going to have its denouement, its downfall, and will decline in its power. And then another angel goes up, and that represents the next kingdom that will subjugate the Jews or be the dominant power that the Jews will have to be subservient to, okay, etc. Now, the Medrash, that's only one interpretation. How the Rambam knows that that's the correct interpretation is really his prerogative to decide how he wants to interpret the dream. But I want to be clear that that's not the only interpretation. However, the Rambam says that Yaakov, when he had the dream, clearly understood what the dream meant. And in my opinion, the Midrash is correct. That particular Midrash is correct uh, in that that's what Yaakov was being communicated. He was being told that his descendants would be under the subjugation of various kingdoms. And he says another example, which, by the way, is quite interesting, that, that it turns out that there's a dispute among the commentaries as to what the message was to Yaakov. If there's only one message, according to the Rambam, and it's that message is made quite clear to the dreamer or to the prophet, then clearly it's not just they're open to various interpretations. The prophet is aware uh, clearly of what that message is. Another Now, I want to point out, before we go any further in the Mishnah Torah, that the Rambam, in the introduction to Moren Nevuchim, did make mention of Yaakov's dream of the latter. Uh, I'm not expecting anyone to remember. I didn't remember until it was brought to my attention by some of the commentaries. Um, the Rambam had said that in talking about prophecy in a very, very brief way, in the introduction to Moren Nevuchim, and you can find it in the Pines edition on pages 12 and 13 of the uh, of the Moreh, he says, know that the figures employed by prophets are of two kinds. In other words, there are certain visions that prophets have where every single detail of the vision is conveying a particular message. But then there are other uh, types of visions or parables as a whole represents a general idea but has a great many points which have no reference whatever to that idea. They are simply required to give to the simile its proper form or order, or better to conceal the idea. The simile is therefore continued as far as necessary according to its literal sense. Sometimes when a prophet has a dream, not every detail of that dream is part of the message. Sometimes it is though. And the Rambam says that in the case of Yaakov's dream of the angels ascending and descending the ladder, um, every single detail of that dream was part of the message. He therefore says an example of the first case where every detail of that vision is conveying a message is the story of the ladder. He says the word ladder refers to one idea set upon the earth to another, and the top of it reached to heaven a third, angels of God to a fourth, ascending to a fifth, descending to a sixth, the Lord stood above it to a seventh, Every word in this figure introduces a fresh element into the idea represented by the figure. Now, when we compare this to what the Rambam writes in Mishneh Torah, we certainly appreciate that every single aspect of the dream, both the angels ascending, descending, the latter represents the rise to power. God looking over it is God supervising the process of 
which kingdoms ascend and which kingdoms de decline and so forth and so on. So, so uh, 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 this is very consistent with what the Rambam writes in the Mishneh Torah. Then he gives another example. He says, chayot yechezkel, the, the, uh, the beasts that Yechezkel sees in his vision, the, the, the heaven, the celestial uh, angels that Yechezkel sees in his vision. Vahasir nafuach, and the boiling over pot. We're going to look at all of these examples very, very shortly. We're not going to go through all of the examples now because the Rambam is going to make reference to them in our chapter. V'chein sharanavim and all of the other prophets as well. Mehem omrim hamashal upitrono kemo elu. There are some where scripture actually gives the parable illustration, the parable vision, and the meaning is explicitly written in scripture. V'yeshehen omrim hapitaron bilvad. And sometimes only the um, expression of the message is, is conveyed in the prophecy without the prophet explaining what he saw in the vision. And sometimes it'll occur in scripture that the vision itself is described, but the interpretation of that vision is not described in scripture. And it's therefore up to the commentaries to explain what it means. As sometimes the prophecies of Yechezkel and Zechariah in those two literary works of the Tanakh, sometimes you'll see you'll see recorded in the Tanakh only their vision, but not the meaning of the vision. But all prophets prophesy using some kind of illustrative parable in order to convey the message. Again, we're not getting to the why yet. Let's go on to the next part where we get into the meat of our chapter. The Rambam writes that sometimes the meaning of the, the vision is transmitted to the prophet while still dreaming. Now the Rambam needs to make a, an emphatic point of this because in our last chapter, chapter 42, the Rambam was very, very clear and unambiguous that whenever scripture describes an encounter between an angel and a human being, that encounter is not happening in the real world since angels do not occupy physical space. Those encounters are happening within the vision of the prophecy itself. So it, and it could also quite be, be, be possible that, a, that what is being described is the prophet says, I had a vision, and then I woke up from that vision, and I asked the angel, what does it mean? And the angel explained it to me. And that, the Rambam says, even the part where it says, I woke up, is still happening in the dream. It's basically a dream within a dream. And he says, in our chapter, that, that could quite often occur in real life. Did you ever dream that you were dreaming, and that in the dream you woke up from the dream? He says that happens to human beings all the time when they're dreaming. And therefore, when scripture says that, like in the book of Daniel, that the, or, or, um, or in Zechariah, if everyone could please mute themselves, I'd be grateful. If um, when it says that I woke up and um, it, it doesn't, and I, I spoke to the angel, right, as we're going to see an example in the book of Zechariah in just a second, it doesn't mean that I was physically awake in the real waking world. It means that I was still dreaming because I was speaking to an angel. Um, so what the Rambam is referring to over here is a, is a case in the book of Zechariah chapter 4. If this text is somewhat familiar to you, it's because it is the Haftorah for Shabbat Chanukah, where the prophet Zechariah has a vision of a menorah. V'hinei menorah zahav kula al roshah. 
he has a vision of a, a, a prefab menorah. In other words, he doesn't see the construction of the menorah. He just sees a menorah spontaneously coming into existence. It is quite elaborate in the way he describes it with its seven branches, and it has uh, olives, and it has, um, uh, it has other kinds of uh, decorations on the menorah, and it is lit. And then he says, Va'an va'omar el hamalacha dover bileimor, ma'ela adoni. And then I turned to the angel and I said, what is the meaning of this vision? And so it says that the angel answered to me and says that Zedivar Hashem el Zerubavel lemor. This is the word of God to Zerubavel, the ruler over the Jews in the diaspora, who was now coming back to rebuild the second temple. Lo v'chayel v'lo v'choach ki'im v'ruchi amar Hashem tzivakot. It is not with the strength uh, or with your army that you will come to rebuild Jerusalem and regain Eretz Yisrael, but rather it is with the Spirit of God. And as the Radak explains, what this means is your vision of the menorah was not that human beings built the menorah, but that the menorah came into existence by the power of God. Similarly, the second temple will ascend to its status um, through the power of God and not through the power of man. So I'm just going to make sure that everyone's muted here. I, I apologize, but we just want to make sure that um, um, there's no um, ambient noise. So thank you for that. And let me just share my screen one more time. Here we go. Okay. So, um, so, um, so, so that's the meaning. And another example is in the book of Daniel. And it's, it's in uh, Aramaic, but it, it does describe that Daniel is having a vision that is quite frightening. And he asks, he turns to the angel, and the angel, Ufeshar Milaya Yehudi Anani, that he asks the angel to please interpret what these beasts that he's having in his vision are. And the angel tells him that these four beasts that he had in his vision refer to the four kingdoms that are going to dominate the Jewish people throughout Jewish history. And the Rambam points out that even though um, there are uh, these terms that we see recurring constantly when a prophet has a vision, they are either the words mar'ah, chazon, or machazeh, these words, which the Rambam, by the way, did explain in, um, uh, in chapter 41, he talked about those words and how they all refer to a prophetic vision. Nonetheless, when we get to chapter 45, we'll see that there are different gradations or different levels, madregot, of prophecy. We're going to get to that later on. Next, next part of the chapter. Other times, the interpretation of the metaphorical vision is interpreted only after the prophet awakens from his prophecy. So, first kind of prophecy that you'll find in scripture is where, while I'm in the dreamlike state, I immediately understand the prophecy or it is explained to me by an angel. Other times, the prophet dreams and he has the dream of the parable vision, but it's only after he wakes up that he understands the meaning of it. And an example is from Zechariah chapter 11, where it says, Zechariah has a vision of sheep being taken to the slaughter, being taken to the slaughterer's chambers. You know, when you take a sheep to the, to the person who's going to be slaughtering it, you sort of see that vision of the angels in that pen where they're being held for the slaughterer to slaughter them which demonstrates that they are these sheep are in a compromised state. And I took two sticks, 
Le'achad karati noam, u'lachad karati chovlim. I called the first stick noam, which means pleasant or soft, and the other one I called chovlim, which means injuring or injurious. And I tended to this flock using these two sticks. And I have removed the three shepherds in one month, says God. Because I have become very um, impatient with the Jewish people. And their souls rebelled or despised me as well. In other words, the, the, the scripture is describing the Jewish people somehow compared to sheep being taken to the slaughter, describing an impending doom that is coming to the Jewish people because the relationship between God and Israel has soured. And the, uh, the, um, uh, we're going to come back to this section in this passage, passage in Zechariah chapter 11 shortly when we get to the end of the chapter. But what the, um, what, the, the, what, what the Rambam is basically saying is that since this vision does not, um, does not explicitly tell us what the message is, this is an indication that the, the prophet is only dreaming the vision and only later discovers what the real meaning of the vision is. In other words, there's no God speaking to the prophet and saying the representation of this image means X. Okay, so the next point is the metaphorical images convey the message of God in one of two ways. One way is that the image plainly, plainly represents what is about to happen because the image itself is representative of something that you can interpret to refer to what is happening or going to happen to the Jewish people. So one example is Zechariah's menorahs, like we learned above, as a metaphor for the spontaneous building of the second temple through God's strength, not through human strength. Another example are Zechariah's horses of the four chariots and the copper mountains as a metaphor for the four kingdoms that would dominate Israel. This is Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where he has a vision of a group of chariots. Arba Markavot Yotzot, four chariots are going out and riding on copper mountains, which means the chariots are very strong and the hard terrain of the mountain is not in any way weakening those chariots or causing the chariots to fall apart because it's describing four very strong chariots. And these chariots obviously represent the four kingdoms. And um, so in this vision, when you have this idea of a chariot, which represents someone who's in control of the horses, someone who's in control of the terrain, someone who can dominate and be in control of a situation, so, and each uh, chariot has different source, horses pulling the chariot. Some horses are white, some horses are red. They each color represents a different kingdom, as is explained by the commentaries. Another example of where the parable itself, the parable image, is descriptive of what is going to happen is God tells Ezekiel to eat a scroll, to eat a Megillah. And that's a metaphor, that's in Yechezkel chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. That's a metaphor for accepting God's decree wholeheartedly and internalizing the message. If I tell you to eat a message, I'm telling you not only to read the message, but to internalize it and make sure that it's well understood to you. 
Another example that he brings is from Daniel's beasts. Daniel has a very elaborate vision of beasts in Daniel chapters 7 and 8. And this is also a metaphor, a metaphor for the four kingdoms that would subjugate Israel and then be defeated. As you can see, this is a recurring theme among many of our prophets. Another example is Jeremiah's boiling over pot coming from the north, which is described in the first chapter of Sefer Yirmiya, verses 13 and 14, as a metaphor for a turbulent attack on Israel from the north. The Babylonians came from the north, from what is now modern-day Iraq. Okay, so these are all examples, says the Rambam, of where the parable image refers very directly to an event that is about to happen. And it's represented by animals, it's represented by a pot with bubbling, turbulent uh, water that represents turmoil, you know, toil and trouble, right? Uh, so so this is, uh, these are all very straightforward images that represent an event that is about to happen. But then there's a second kind of metaphorical image that the Rambam talks about now where the image represents a word or words that can allude to an action taking place. This can take place in one of three ways, where you have to use some wordplay in order to understand. It's not like a boiling pot which represents turbulence or trouble that is brewing, trouble that is coming. But rather, a prophet might see something in an image which, in Hebrew, that word that, for the image that he's seeing could also have a different meaning. And that's, the, that's how you interpret the, the image. So, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, just a couple of verses before the image of the boiling pot, Jeremiah has a different vision. It's, That God spoke to Jeremiah and said, What do you see, Jeremiah? And he said, I see an almond branch. That's widely what he describes, a branch from an almond tree or a stick made from almond wood. Either that could be another way of interpreting the verse. Vayomer Hashem Eli liot ki ani al divari And God said to me, that's a good vision. In other words, you know, good gezakt is what we would say in Yiddish. You've seen the vision correctly. And what does the almond branch represent? The word almond is shakedia, is an almond tree. So the word shokade means I'm going to do something quickly. And that's Mitsudas Tzion says, shokade inyan mihirut, I'm going to act quickly. I'm going to do something quickly to bring retribution upon the Jewish people by bringing very, very shortly, I'm bringing the Babylonian forces against Eretz Israel. So that's one way, is where it's wordplay. You, the word shakade means almond, and it also means quickly. So you, you, you have to know, so the prophet can only be prophesying and understanding the message if he understands Hebrew. Because if, let's say, he were Greek, and he would have an image of an almond tree, I'm sure the Greek equivalent to an almond tree has no connection to the word quick, right? So therefore, it only works if you're a Hebrew speaker. The second way that the word play takes place in the prophecy is that the word illustrated can have multiple meanings. An example of this is Amos's basket of summer fruit. In the book of Amos chapter 8, Kohir ani Hashem elokim kuluv kayetz, that, uh, that Amos has an image of a basket of summer fruit. 
Vayomer Mataro e Amos, Valmar Kluvkayitz. God says, What do you see, Amos? And Amos says, I see a basket of, of the summer, of, of the summer fruit produce. Vayomer Hashem Eli, Boha Kates El Am Yisrael. So here you have a word which means two, two different things. It's a little bit different from from the from the previous. In other words, the word shakade means almond tree, but if you turn it into a verb, it means that it's coming quickly because the word almond is a is a fruit or a nut that grows quickly on the tree. So the words are connected. The word shakade is connected to almond. However, in this instance, the the, the words don't have any connection whatsoever. The word kayats means summer, and the word kates, which is a derivative of the word kayats, means the end of days is coming. I am bringing an end to the Jewish people, lo osif od avor lo, I will no longer tolerate or be forbearing with them, but I am bringing the end to them. So that's a slightly different way, but it's the same kind of wordplay. And then the third kind of wordplay is where the word being illustrated when jumbling the letters can convey the true message. In other words, this is the hardest one to appreciate, which is that sometimes within a message, there will be a word that is communicated by a vision. And by jumbling the words of that word itself, you get a different word, and that's really the uh, the core of the message that God is bringing. The example, the more elaborate example that the Rambam brings is from the prophet Zechariah. Going back to our passage from chapter 11, remember that Zechariah has an, has an, a, an image, a vision of sheep being taken to the slaughterer's chambers. And then he takes two sticks. One is called Noam and one is called Mechablim. Okay, the simple metaphor is that God is conveying to the Jews that when they followed God with Noam, with obedience and pleasance, Hashem sent them a leader, Moshe, who led them obediently and pleasantly. When you, the Jewish people, were Binoam, when you walked with me pleasantly, then I brought you a leader who was a pleasant leader for you to have upon yourselves. But when the Jews rebelled against God, when they were mechablim, when you were injurious and you were damaging and you, you were not productive and you did things that were destructive, you the Jewish people, right? Um, so then God sent you a destructive leader. But here the Rambam writes that the word mechablim doesn't just mean destructive, but it rather means that you were spoiling. When you spoiled the relationship, because the word mechablim in shir hashirim is mechablim karamim, which means that the vineyards have been spoiled. And in turn, God sent the Jews destructive leaders, Yeravam and Menashe. That's the meaning of the stick that is known as mechablim. In other words, God is a reactive God. Um, the way you, the Jewish people, have behaved towards me is the way that I behave towards you in kind by sending you destructive leaders. But we haven't gotten to the wordplay ju word jumble yet, because in verse eight it says, "Vatiktsarinav shibahem." As a result, my I have become impatient with them, says God. Vigam nafsham bachalabi, and their soul became um, uh, loathing of me. That's what the word bachala means. Um, so, where do you see that the word bachala is a word jumble? Because the word mechablim, you have to actually, it's chet bet lamid is the shoresh, and you have to transpose the letter bet and the letter chet to change it from chaval to bachal. And so here's where the, the Rambam says 
that the prophet sees a stick called mechablim, and he's meant to interpret it as being not only that God is bringing destruction against the Jews by bringing them destructive leaders or a destructive path in their future, but it is happening because you have been bochel me, you have despised me, or you have treated me with loathing. And that's that can that message can only be extracted if you know how to jumble the word slightly. Another example of the of this very elaborate wordplay is from Yechezkel's vision of the chariot, which the Rambam only makes allusion to at the end of this chapter. And he writes, through this method, very wondrous things appear, which are also meant to be secrets. And here the Rambam is pointing out is that sometimes the vision is meant to convey an esoteric message. And that's why many times, like the Rambam wrote above in the Mishnah Torah, that the, the, the words of scripture will not convey the meaning of the of the vision. Why? Because it's an esoteric message. And this is certainly true in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel when we talk about Ezekiel's vision of the chariot. And the one verse that the Rambam does quote for us at the end of our chapter is verse 7 from chapter 1 where it talks about the four God, the four faces of God's chariot which are four different kinds of angelic beings. And the prophet describes these angelic beings as the kafra glehem kikaf regel egel. The, the palms of their feet were like the feet of a calf, the notes that seem, and they were flashing ke'en nechoshet kalal, like brandished brass, or very, very finely processed or uh, refined brass. Now, each of these four words, nechoshet kalal egel, and then the word chashmal, which is actually from verse four, each one of these words has a secret meaning. And more, of course, will be explained when we get to the third section of Moren Vuchim, specifically chapter seven, when the Rambam will explain this word chashmal in more detail. And the Rambam doesn't say anything more than that, that these four words have some kind of secret meaning. If we look at the Shem Tov commentary to the Rambam, he tells us that as we know, from the Rambam's introduction to his Morena Vuchim. The vision of the chariot is a sort of detailed uh, metaphor for the metaphysical realm, for metaphysics, is what the Rambam had ta ta taught us. And so therefore, if we're going to try and make sense of God's interaction with our world, that is really being conveyed through the vision of the chariot. So the word nechoshet, the word brass, or really it really means copper, brass is a misnomer because what we know as brass was only invented much, much later in history, but it really means copper. So nechoshet is from the word hashchata, that there is a certain destructiveness or perishability or a temporary nature to our physical realm. And kalal means from the word lahakel, that destruction comes lightly or quickly, meaning that um, the metaphysical realm manipulates our physical realm and can cause it to decompose and cease to exist very quickly. Egel is davar agul. The word egel means calf, but it also means, uh, agul means round, like a circle. Agol is a circle. And so perhaps it's describing the orbits of the celestial bodies. And chashmal, this is the wordplay part, in that instead of jumbling, you bisect the word into two parts. Chash and mal is something that the Rambam is going to describe for us in chapter 7 of the section 3 of the Mora, where the word chash means 
happening quickly, and mal is being cut down. So cutting down very quickly, just like hashchata and like nechoshet kalal, it's the same idea of something that is very transitory and fleeting, which is a description of our physical existence. It could also be reference to silent and speaking. Chash means to be silent, mal means from the word milah, means to be speaking, because the angels are described as being either silent or speaking in, uh, interchangeably in scripture, and that has a significance. The bottom line is, is that what the Rambam is trying to convey to us is that when you see these passages and you try to reconstruct in your mind's eye the visions that these prophets are having, it's important to note that these are very clear messages that are being conveyed to the prophet, even though they are subject to a lot of interpretation in the commentaries, like the Rambam had written in Mishnah Torah, nonetheless, the, the message to the prophet is quite clear and unambiguous, even though it requires one to really unpack the words in a very creative way. The last thing I wanted to point out is, why do prophecies appear as metaphorical images? That's the one thing that the Rambam hasn't explained. Why, as we started this year today, why can't God just convey what he wants to convey is destruction is coming, or destruction is coming from the north, and, and dispense with the boiling pot, so to speak. So, um, or instead of a vision of angels going up and down a ladder, why not just tell Jacob, your descendants are going to be subjugated by four different kingdoms and be done with it. Why have these images? There's an interesting article from Psychology Today from 2018 called Understanding the Metaphors in Your Dreams. And even though it's written very simplistically, I think it provides us with a little bit of insight perhaps into what we're trying to figure out for today. We'll just read it quickly, just a, a snippet from it. The essence of metaphor in your dreams is understanding one kind of thing in terms of another. We use what we know to help us understand what we don't know. This kind of thinking comes naturally to us. Human brains have evolved a powerful ability to associate, connect, and combine different ideas as a means to greater knowledge and adaptive creativity. Metaphorical thinking is a valuable strength of our species, giving us tremendous flexibility in creative problem solving when faced with unforeseen challenges. For instance, when a large and dangerous hurricane forms offshore, meteorologists and public safety officials use strong metaphors to communicate the level of risk to the public. They might describe the storm as a monster with a gaping eye that threatens to crawl inland and deliver vicious destruction. They might say the storm is winding up to give the coast a punishing wallop. They use something easily understandable, the fear of being attacked by an aggressive monster, to help people understand something they don't yet grasp, the danger of the approaching storm. No metaphor has a single fixed definition. The same image can refer to many different meanings. The genius of the human imagination is its infinite ability to create novel extensions of pre-existing ideas. This is precisely what happens so often in dreaming when the unconscious mind spins out an endless variety of metaphorical images. Dreams do this to promote our psychological health as a way of integrating our emotional experiences and weaving them into a meaningful whole. Now, of course, this is from modern psychology describing the images that we conjure in our dreams. But what if a dream is implanted in our mind from a divine source? Why is God doing that? And I think that what this article is, is trying to, and maybe we can draw something from it, it's, it's because God knows that the, 
the far-flung future is very difficult for the human mind to comprehend or to even envision. If God were to say to Yaakov, there are going to be four kingdoms that are going to, one's going to be called Bavel and the other one's going to be called Rome, and the other, right? Yaakov is going to be totally perplexed and confused and will not be really be able to um, conceptualize it to make it to make the message in any way meaningful. But if he has a vision of angels ascending and descending a ladder, he can associate what God is saying to him about the far-flung future to an experience that he's having right now. And this, the benefit of that is that what whatever the consequence of that message to the prophet is far better internalized by the prophet than if you were just being told words. Let's say you were to travel uh, in a time machine back to the past, and you were going to try to describe to someone that uh, in the future, everyone's going to have a, uh, a laptop on their desk, which will be able to give them access to something that we call the internet. And on the internet, you can go to a, uh, a company called Amazon and order whatever you want, and the next day it's going to just appear at your doorstep. Well, it's possible that a person from, let's say, the Middle Ages might understand the concept, but it will be very disorienting for them unless you bring them some kind of way of, of uh, appreciating the message in something that's relatable to them. So instead of perhaps talking to them about computer technology, you might want to talk about it in terms of magic, that a magic genie is going to appear on everyone's uh, table uh, in, the, in the future, and you'll be able to ask the genie to deliver for you any good that you could possibly imagine by giving them a small pittance of money, and lo and behold, the genie will snap its fingers, and within 24 hours, that item will appear on your desk. Now, of course, that's not the way it's happening, but someone from an ancient culture would probably need to have that idea explained to them in that way. It sort of certainly gives us pause for thinking about all of the prophecies of the third temple and the glorious future that are described by the prophet Yechezkel and Zechariah. Perhaps we might want to consider that some of the miraculous phenomena that are going to take place in the future might be real technological advances, but that they're not uh, able to be conveyed in that way simply because at the time when the people had those prophecies, they had no way of conceptualizing those great technological advances. In any event, I'm going to hold it here for today. I hope that this was meaningful for you. Let's make sure there are no uh, questions or comments before we close this out. Anyone? Okay, if not, let me thank you for joining us. And uh, I regret to tell you that we're going to take a, another break next week because I'll be traveling. So we will commence our shear in two weeks from today. Thank you. And hopefully that'll be the last break for a while. All the best. Bye-bye.